Hello, and welcome to Nice Jewish Fangirls, a podcast where three Orthodox women discuss all of the wonderfully nerdy things that we are obsessed with. Yes, guys, we're back. My name is Michal Schick, and I'm your host, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Tamar Herman. Hello. And S.M. Rosenberg. Hi. So as our kind of soft launch, of relaunch of the podcast, we're going to bring you guys a really cool interview we did with the editors of the Jewish Futures Anthology, Michael Burstein and Ian Randall Strzok. Uh, that will be coming really soon in this episode. But of course, obviously, guys, it's the nice Jewish fangirls. We have to start off with, well, A, how are you doing? And B, our current obsessions. So, SM, how are you doing? I am doing okay. Um, I can't say my current obsession is the Jewish Futures Anthology because I have a story in it, and that would just be <laughs> silly. Um, um, I, I am doing... Uh, the exciting thing that I am obsessed with has to do with how I'm doing, which is that um, my roommate moved out recently, and I've turned her room into a craft room or a home office sort of thing. And I'm... I've got all kinds of art supplies in here. Mostly it's fabric and stuff because I've been uh I've been making clothes and I've been tailoring clothes and making things for other people and mending things for other people. Um but I am set up to do other things like podcast and um various other crafty hobbies. I have actually rescued some furniture and I've been reupholstering a, a chair <laughs> just for fun. Um, so yeah, that's my uh, current obsession slash how I'm doing right now. Fantastic. Awesome. And Tamar, how about you? Um, so I was like just trying to figure out which one was my current obsession. And then I realized that my current obsession is actually... Amazon Prime Video, which sounds really strange, but I actually like I, I have like a lot of thoughts that they have all of the sci-fi and fantasy shows that I'm currently enjoying um, or like have enjoyed in recent years have come from like particularly much um, like the ones that like have really resonated with me have come from them. So I really loved Rings of Power. I really loved The Expanse. And today I literally binge watched Good Omens um, season two. So like all these things these three and and I I didn't love Wheel of Time but I'm like thinking hmm, if I enjoyed those maybe I should give it another chance now that they're doing the second season um but I just I just have been thinking a lot about their quality and how like you don't hear the buzz about like Amazon Prime like there was a lot of uh media articles at the time about how um House of Dragons was getting a lot of buzz but Rings of Power wasn't just because people don't necessarily think Amazon Prime's like their video content is particularly good. Also, it's it's like the name is annoying. Like we should just call it Prime, and they should like launch it as a different site instead of having to go through Amazon because it's honestly kind of annoying. I know all these shows are just to like sell books and stuff, um, but I, th- I think they did a great job on all of them. I've enjoyed them all. And yes, Rings of Power has issues. We can talk about it another time, but I still love it. Um, and Expense and Good Omens are almost flawless um, adaptations of, of books and beyond so i think i I just been have been really (laughs) into like primes uh sci-fi and fantasy content lately and if anybody has any recs i'm into the boys but i don't see oh i love the boys 
Oh, you I, do? No, no, I love the boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I, yeah, and I, I love, love especially the, the anti-capitalist thing, but it's on the platform of, like, the ultimate capitalism. So it's, like, <laughs> yeah. just extra layers of irony all there, but I love the show, and, yeah, the actors are fantastic, and the writing is really sharp, and, yeah, so if you can handle uh, lots of gore, and, like, I mean extreme amounts of gore, um, yeah, that's that's a show that I would recommend <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for the like prequel that they're doing. But how about you, Michal? Yeah, so I um I think I'm gonna go to something I've been obsessed with for like a while, but I don't think I've ever mentioned it on the podcast specifically. Um, although who can remember? Um the history hit family of podcasts, particularly Gone Medieval and uh not just the Tudors, are some of my favorite podcasts right now. Um, they are just really smart. They talk about a bunch of different kind of topics, some of which you would kind of would be obvious, like kings and queens and, and you know, what was it like to be a peasant and stuff like that. And then others that are just like medieval jokes and, you know, what people did when they recovered from childbirth or, you know, stuff like that, that I, I really quite enjoy. Um, I don't think either podcast has enough discussion of Jews in the medieval period or the early modern period personally, but then again, you can't expect non-Jewish history to always talk about the Jews, right? Can we? I don't know. Except yeah, when yeah, they're I killing know. us. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, in Gone Medieval, like it, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, in, um, in uh, not just the Tudors, uh, it's about the 16th century, all of Europe, and, and sometimes broader, but primarily England. As we know, there weren't really any official Jews in England at that point. Um, but I do think that they could they could get around to uh, doing some more some some more coverage on that topic. I actually emailed them and asked them to like to uh, I suggested a topic about a possible crypto Jew in Elizabethan England, but I don't know. So yeah, that's that's my just wildly nerdy uh, <laughs> current obsession. Um, you could just call it research for my novel. Everything, everything is, is research for my novel. Um, <laughs> all right. So with that, we are going to head to our interview with Michael and Ian. All right. And we are so happy to welcome to the podcast, Michael Burstein and Ian Randall-Strock, who are the editors of Jewish Futures, a new Jewish science fiction anthology uh, that is coming out this month in August. Uh, Michael and Ian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. So um, can you guys give us each a little bit of your background in your in your writing, in your connection to you know Jewish sci-fi specifically, all that kind of thing? Ian, do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? I can go first. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm an editor, I'm a publisher. I've been a science fiction professional for <clears throat> a very long time. Um, I, I first walked in the door at Analog and Asimov's in January of 1989 and got hired as the editorial assistant. And I was there for six years. They, they'd asked me to promise to stay at least one. I stayed six years and realized my bosses weren't getting any older and they weren't retiring, so I had to leave. And I've been through a slew of other editorial positions since then, and for the last 11, 12 years, I've been the owner and publisher of Fantastic Books, which is the speculative fiction imprint of Grey Rabbit Publications, also my company, um, publishing books. 
on the other side of the editorial desk, I've been a professional writer since I was in high school, and my first science fiction sale came in 1992. Um, not much of my science fiction is specifically Jewish, but I myself am Jewish. I had two bar mitzvahs, so I figure that counts. And Michael came to me with this brilliant idea for the book. By the way, while we are publishing this book, well, we're publishing the book right now, I'm also working on a novel, which came to me the same time Michael came to me, also Jewish science fiction set in the far future, having nothing to do with this anthology. It's just both projects wound up in my lap at the same time. That's, uh, that's kind of amusing because I know that one of the writers in Jewish Futures Bob Greenberger is working on a Jewish-themed science fiction story now, and he said to me, his entire career, he's never written Jewish science fiction, and suddenly now he's writing, you know, he just published one and he's writing another one. But anyway, so um, try to answer your question uh, and see how brief I can be. Um, I've been um, I, I, I've been writing science fiction, publishing science fiction, since my uh, first published story was in the July 1995 Analog magazine. Uh, a story called Teleabsence. Uh, there's actually an interesting thing. It's because I was uh, selling stories to Analog and that uh, and trying to publish there that I met Ian. Uh, and in fact, Ian called me to tell me that the story had finally been accepted. I had sent the story uh, to the editor of the magazine at the time, Stanley Schmidt, uh, and I'd been trying to sell stories for quite some time, and he finally decided to asked me to revise this story. He had some ideas and things like he thought I had something with it. And when he finally, I think I revised it twice during which I went to the Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writing Workshop. Uh, that was in 1994. And then finally he decided it was a publishable story. And um, Ian decided, I guess Ian, you asked Stan if you could call me to tell me. And he did. And, I'm, and Ian called and I was delighted. Uh, and since then, I've published a lot of uh, other stories, uh, a lot in analog, uh, many also in anthologies. Um, and uh, I ended up being nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula a bunch of times. And back in 1997, you know, really just on the basis of a handful of stories, I, I won the uh, what was then called the John Campbell Award for Best New Writer, now called the Astounding Award for Best New Writer. So um, um, back in... Uh, Wow, I think it was 2008. I collected all of the stories of mine that been nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula in a book called "I Remember the Future." Um, Jason Sizemore at Apex Publications brought that into print, and he kept it in print for many years. Uh, finally, the book had to go out of print, uh, but Ian uh, was very glad to take it on and to continue keeping it in print. With fantastic books, um, I have written Jewish science fiction. Uh, probably one of my most well-known stories is Kaddish for the Last Survivor, which is about the last Holocaust survivor. Uh, that one, I think, got nominated for the Hugo. It, I'd have to go... <laughs> sorry. I, I know it sounds weird to say, but I have to go and check which award. Oh, so many awards. I can't keep track. <laughs> I, I was nominated for the Hugo 10 times and the Nebula four times. So. Uh, but Kaddish for the Last Survivor is actually available online. So if anybody wants to type it into a, a search engine, um, Apex... Uh, publications keeps it online uh, for me so people can read it. I've also wrote a few other Jewish science fiction stories, including one called The Great Miracle, which is a, a science fiction retelling of the Hanukkah story. Um, and uh, there's a few others. One story I wrote called Reality Check, which is not available online, but it is in the book I Remember the Future, specifically has a modern Orthodox Jewish protagonist. Um, I wanted to, uh, my uh, uh, brother-in-law had mentioned how we never see 
someone like him in fiction or rarely. And so I decided to write a story in which it turned out that this particular character's religious beliefs actually feed into a, a sort of parallel universe story. So I've written Jewish science fiction, but also written a lot of science fiction that's not Jewish. Um, I think that answers your question. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> so you guys have cred, basically, is what you're saying. Awesome. Yeah, lots of cred. <laughs> I think so. I, th- I think it's okay for us to be the ones publishing this book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I, I agree with Ian on, on that. Yeah. So that brings us to the next question of why this specific book? Um, what were your, I know your inspirations were obviously the, uh, the original Jack Dan anthologies, Wandering Stars. Um, what made you feel that this was the time and this was the, the right way to go about bringing another uh, Jewish sci-fi anthology around? I've I've been thinking about this for quite some time. I mean, um, you know, they're, they're Jewish science fiction stories do get published, but often, you know, they, they show up in various different places. And, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's something you're not necessarily always going to be able to find them like all together. And, uh, uh, one of our writers in the book, actually, and a friend of mine uh, who's a writer, Stephen H. Silver, um, Stephen keeps a list online of every Jewish science fiction story that he's able to, um, uh, to document and he puts it on this whole um, <clears throat> website. Then you can, again, that's something else you can search for and find. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, and I, 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 there's a little bit is mentioned in the introduction to the book, but um, I um, talked about, how, let me think. So Wandering Stars was a book that came out in 1974. It was edited by Jack Dan. And it was basically the first collection of Jewish science fiction stories. And, you know, my dad had bought a copy and I may have read it then or maybe I was a little older, but it was a collection of Jewish science fiction stories. And it was really the first time I think that, that Jewish science fiction was being viewed at as a thing, you know, and Jewish science fiction um, I mean, there were, there had been, I, I, there had obviously been science fiction stories that were Jewish because the book included reprints as well as new stories that, that, that Jack had decided to, uh, to acquire for it. And then, uh, in 1981, he published a sequel called More Wandering Stars. And these books are very influential for me. I mean, like many of the things that I read as a child and enjoyed in, in science fiction, reading the works of Isaac Asimov, watching Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, Superman, comic books, I mean, all these things, I always kept, you know, wandering stars in my mind. And, and the fact is, as, as I mentioned, I wrote some Jewish science fiction stories. And over the years, there have been other collections of Jewish science fiction that have come out. There were the, um, um, there was a book, I think at one point came out called People of the Book, and I think it was reprints. There was Jews versus Aliens, Jews versus Zombies. And even just last year, there was a collection of alternate history, uh, Jewish stories called, um, Other Covenants. But I've been thinking for a long time, it's gonna, you know, that I really wanted to edit the third volume of Wandering Stars, you know, uh, and, um, and, I want, I, I wanted to see a, a collection. I didn't just want reprints. I wanted a collection of new Jewish science fiction. What could people write? What, 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 what stories might be out there? And, um, fortunately, you know, I, I, I mean, this has been coming to my mind and I've been not necessarily focused on all the time, but I started really thinking about it in earnest, um, as I was watching what Ian was doing with fantastic books. Um, because over the past few years, uh, Ian had been, um, funding a variety of anthologies using Kickstarter 
and doing it quite successfully and, and actually releasing some really good books. And I, I, I backed every single one of those collections and, and enjoyed them. And I thought, and, you know, and I knew I for many years, you know, we're friends. And I thought, you know, he'd be the perfect person to take on this project, uh, if he's willing to do it as the publisher. So I approached him. Uh, I, I don't know at which point you want to start taking over and saying well, something. And then I said, you know, as the only Jew working in publishing, that, that's sarcasm. <laughs> um, I'm the perfect publisher for this book. No, I mean, Michael came to me with the idea and I said, you know, I think this is something that can find a following, that can find an audience. And it's something that I'm interested in seeing out there as well. Um, and, you know, publishing is a business. I think this is something that maybe I'll be able to make a few bucks with. Um, pay the authors a little bit, pay the editor a little bit, maybe have a little left over for me. But it's something that, as Michael said, needed to be published. It's been a long time. And yeah, I thought we were the right duo to do it. And it turns out, I think we are. <laughs> we did a pretty darn good job. I th Oh, I was going to say, I, th I think we've done a good job. The book hasn't been published yet, but we've gotten a great review from Publishers Weekly. We've gotten a wonderful mention in The Atlantic. Um, I, I expect That was my brother. That was my brother. But he was like, I know that he wouldn't say nice things about it if he didn't really, you know, enjoy those stories that he mentioned, especially like um, he would very politely get out, weasel his way out of doing anything you know, to promote it if he did, if he wanted to. But he went out of his way um, to make sure that he uh, was able to to get in that culture column and give it a little bit of a shout out. So that was nice. Yeah, no, that was awesome. And I would never question his journalistic ethics. So obviously, <laughs> you know, pleasing your sister is good, but keeping your job is far more important. I'm not sure. I, I will note that, that he does mention three stories in the book that he, he liked, and two of them actually have gotten praise from other places as well. So, you know, it's, it's yeah. uh, you know, I, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, so I, I and, and I basically decided we would do this book. I as the editor and I as the publisher. And um, it took a bit of work because um, when you're doing a, a project like this in Kickstarter, what you need to do is, you know, you, I, I, I presume, I don't know how many of your listeners really are familiar with how traditional publishing works and, you know, self-publishing, different types of things. But in traditional publishing, you know, you already have uh, presumably the money that you need to, like, do a profit and loss statement, figure out the book, put in the investment, you know pay to bring out the book and then you start getting your money back. And the, the nice thing about crowdfunding pro, you know, um, uh, platform is that, you know, it's a real game changer. We could tell the world, Hey, we're going to do a book called Jewish futures. Um, and if you want a copy of it, please pay us now, you know, and we will eventually get the book to you. And that way that, that allows us to build up the money we need to pay the writers, pay the printer, uh, mail the books to everybody who decides to buy one. Uh, it also allows you to offer other things like tuckerizations, which is when uh, you name a character for somebody who gives you enough, you know, says, hey, if you, if you give us X dollars, we'll name a character for you in a story. Uh, you can, you can offer, you know, um, uh, to put the names of the backers in the back of the book. I've had my name in the back of many projects as somebody who, who supported a project. I, I mean, it, it's really a wonderful thing. It's essentially, you, you don't have to worry about how much money I'm going to make off of this eventually. You've already made the money you need to produce the book. And um, the thing is, though, you want to make sure you have something in there that's of interest to your readers. So uh, Ian and I basically, you know, discussed uh, what writers we would like to have in the book? Who would we want to 
uh, start off with to invite into a book called Jewish Futures. And um, I, I came up with a list. Uh, I and looked at it. We discussed it. I reached out to uh, a bunch of writers who I thought, you know, it was basically, you know, it's stuff I, you know, writers whose work I was already familiar with, writers I had read, writers who I felt uh, fit the theme of the book, be able to write stories. Uh, and I asked them, would you be interested and willing to be part of uh, this project? And, and the only requirements are that if you're going to be in the project, you need to, well, obviously you need to provide us with a story. And I wanted to know story ideas. I reserved the right to say, I don't really want a story with this idea from you. I'd like something else. Uh, I, I will say in this case, I think every writer who was invited into the book had an idea that I thought that's a great idea. Go for it. Um, but you have um, to do that to make sure there aren't too many stories on the same topic. Yeah, right. I, if like if like every writer had said, "I'm going to write a story about a golem," for example, you know, which <laughs> seems to be one of the go-to things that, that Jewish. Oh, I'm going to write Jewish science fiction. I'm going to make a robotic golem. It's like, yeah, okay. You know, a lot of people are going to think of that. And, but there um, is a there is a robot golem in the anthology, and I love that story, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And, and oddly, oddly, that was one of the stories that was that was submitted to us. And that, that's actually uh-huh. an interesting thing. So, um, but yeah, but but we we basically uh, we we got a, a bunch of writers, including actually um, um, uh, S. M. Rosenberg, who's here on the uh, uh, on the uh, podcast. Um, Heard of her? And you know, and um, I, I reached out. Now, I, I will say without naming names, there were some writers I reached out to who came back to me and said, you know, I really don't think I can do this. I said, okay. Um, you know, I really wanted it. But, you know, I eventually, we got eventually, how many writers do we have? Like, I guess about 12, 11 or 12 writers, about that number. Yeah. Um, who a minion. Said, sorry? A minion. Yeah, a minion. <laughs> yeah. Who said, okay, they would do a story. And then because it's a Kickstarter project, the other thing that you're doing you know, you're trying to, you have to get the news out there. You have to get the word out there. You have to promote it because you're looking to tell people, hey, we have this project. And if you want to see this happen, please back the project. So, you know, we created a Kickstarter page where we tell people about who the writers are. Uh, we tell them what, you know, the rewards are. I mean, this is, I think, pretty familiar to anybody who, you know, has been looking at crowdfunding in the past few years, but this is how it works. And, and then we, click the on button and uh, people start backing the project and we watch and watch. And I think I am, this was the project yours that, that funded the quickest. I think we, we funded at our minimum, the amount of money we needed in like four days. Was yep. it less than that? Yeah. Four days. So in four days we had enough money to basically say the project was a go. Um, and by the end they, you had twice this as much as you needed. Yep. Um, yeah, I think we said, actually didn't we have even more than twice what we needed. Well, <laughs> my Kickstarter not. fees it came up to just about twice. Yeah, so we're all right. Yes, Kickstarter fees. I forgot about this. Um, I, but one of the many things I appreciate doing this project with Ian is he's the publisher. You know, <laughs> we we you know I mean we each have a certain amount of work we have to do. I as the editor had to get reach out to the authors. I had to um, read the stories. I had to edit the stories. Go back to the authors and say you know, suggest changes, you know, this would make things better here. Uh, and then, and then as a you know, part of the story, when we opened it up to submissions, I had to read those. Um, Ian, um, you know, Baruch Hashem as publisher, Ian did a lot of the other work that I didn't want to deal with, like setting it into type, you know, and he knows the printers and he knows, and he gets the books to him. You know, Ian is the guy who sent out all the print copies to everybody. You know, Ian's the guy who sends out the eBooks to everybody. You know, it's like he, he's doing, you know, the work of, of the publisher. 
You know, I mean, it's a fascinating new world with all this. I have friends of mine who publish traditionally and have for years, and I have other friends who have just started self-publishing. And and everybody has a different way of how they want to do it or what they feel is the right way to do it. And I, I still remember years ago, there was one week in publishing where there was some writer who, I, I don't remember the names of either of these writers, but there was this one writer who had spent her whole career self-publishing and making a lot of money and got on the radar of New York publishers and decided to do her next book with a New York publisher. And that same week, there was this guy who'd been publishing with his New York publisher for years who announced that he was taking his next book to himself as a self-published book. And everybody was like saying, well, what does this mean? Is it right to do it this way? Is it right to do it that way? And the answer is, it's right for whatever it is for you. There are many different options and ways to do it. You know, I could have, you know, I, I, you know, I could have sat down and taken care of a lot of the publishing details that I would take care of. But why should I do that when I've got a partner who knows how to do these things and wanted to do the book? Yeah, my dad's books are self-published. Um, and it was like a whole family project because different people mm -hmm. in our family have different strengths. Um, and it, I felt like it was the first group project I was ever involved in where everyone pulled their weight, you know, and it sounds yeah. like this was the ki that kind of partnership. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not, the part of it also, I, in, in my day job, I, I'm actually an editorial manager. You know, I've worked in a variety of publishing things for years. So, you know, I know how, how it works. You know, this is like, you know, I, and, and so does I, you know, we, we know what, what the, what the different tasks and jobs are of the different roles. And, and it means that, that we, we don't go into this thinking, oh, so and so is going to do this and so is going to do that. And sometimes I ask, you know, when I, when I sent I in the manuscript, I said, how much do you need me to do of the formatting? And, and again, I'm very grateful. He said, I'll take care of the formatting. Just make sure I've got the manuscript and everything spelled right. Um, oh, which by the way, I, and one of my friends tells me that they found a typo in the book already. <laughs> yeah, I, I, will, I, I yeah. found a couple of them, but it's like, you always find them when it's yeah. too late. There's a there's a law that that my wife Nomi, who's also a writer and editor, she she says, um, I, I don't know where she got it from, or she, you know, but every every proofreading pass catches fifty percent of the remaining errors. <laughs> so it's asymptotic; you're never going to miss everything, but uh, yeah. get it, catch everything. Sorry. Anyway, um. One of the things, however, that did excite me about doing a collection of Jewish science fiction was that I wanted not just to bring in some writers who I knew. And actually, some of the writers who I invited weren't people I actually knew, but people who I just, you know, knew of their writing, um, I think. Um, but I, yeah, well, I think in the end, most of the people did end up in the book with people I knew. But I also wanted, um, I wanted to give people who were not invited into the book a chance to be in the book. I, 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 I'm really big on the idea of open submissions. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, anthologies where they say, here are the people who are going to be in the book and this is, um, what we're going to do. And th that's fine for them. But I, I wanted to actually, um, you know, be able to accept stories from other people and see if somebody had written things out there. So, um, we made those stretch goals and we actually got to the point where, um, I was able in the end to accept five stories. So I think that's right. One, to I'm counting right now for uh, um, three, four, maybe five, five. I think. Wait. I one. think we had, you had originally four open yeah, 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 submissions, yeah. and then you opened right, up then a we, fifth spot. Right. We opened up a fifth. Yeah, we had opened up a fifth spot. But the key thing is that we had a we had an open submissions period. So after 
um, after after the Kickstarter uh, had funded and after it had closed, uh, and we you know and and you know the, the the next part of the process, all the invited writers had to write their stories, and I gave everybody a deadline. Uh, and said, I need you to have your story by this time so that I can properly edit it and send it back to you for you to, you know, to, to, to fix anything that needs to be fixed and go back and forth on that. Um, but I also had, you know, opened it up to submissions and we had, I'm trying to remember how long the submissions period was. I think we ended it with Hanukkah. You know, we did, we did a lot of Jewish themes in, in this Kickstarter. So for example, the, the Tuckerization, if you could get your name in the book, we call that a room plaque. If you wanted to just like put a little money into the project, but weren't, didn't need a reward, we said it's a mitzvah. You know, we, we, we gave all these different little, uh, you know, sort of appropriate names to the different levels uh, that you could back on Kickstarter. And, um, and I, I put out a call and after, uh, the submissions period had closed, I had 68 stories from writers, uh, mostly writers I didn't know. Some were writers that people actually did know. Uh, and I had to then go through, and this is, this is again the work that I had to do that I didn't do. I had to go through and read all these stories and figure out which stories would best fit in the book. And it is, it, it's actually, um, I, I, I can't speak for every editor, but I will tell you that, you know, for I, my, my feeling is that most editors, you don't want to reject a story. You know, you're not in this business because you're looking to, you know, break someone's heart by sending back their story and saying you can't use it. You're looking to find stories by people that are good and you could say, hey, I like this and I want to publish it. And, you know, so in the end, since, you know, I would only give me room for five stories and not 68, I could not accept every story for the book. But um, I went through and I read the stories and I reread the stories and I eventually did, you know, pick the five that, that, were good stories, but also that sort of fit in the book that I was envisioning. And that's another part of doing an anthology like this, because, you know, I, 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 Jewish science fiction could, could refer to many different types of things. There's, there are humorous stories, there are serious stories. You could, you know, have stories about, you know, oh, let's see, what were Jews on, on another planet? Or, and of course, we have that in here. We also have aliens who are Jewish. We have aliens that want to become Jewish. We have, Artificial intelligence is one of them. There are all these different things that you can have out there. But I, again, I don't want to have too many of the same thing. You know, I'm not going to fill a book, you know, of, of stories like this with golems unless we were going to, unless I, and that's, that'll be, that'll be another anthology. We'll do golem stories, you know, and, um, yeah, no. You really have to um, twist my arm for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to do that either. But, um, I, I went, I, I started reading through all the submissions and I found five stories that I really liked that I also felt would fit in the book. And, and this is a part where, where it gets very interesting for me. So first of all, there were some friends of mine who submitted stories, some of whom submitted stories at my urging. I actually had reached out to them and said, hey, if you've got a story, send it to me. And, you know, and a few of those friends, I had to reject their stories. And I felt really <laughs> bad about it, especially the ones I had said, please send me a story. I sent an email back to one and said, God, I... I it just doesn't fit. I loved it, but I, I just, I can't use it for the book. I'm so sorry about this. He was understanding. I mean, if you're, if you're a professional writer, if you, if you, if you carry yourself professionally, you know, you, rejection is part of the business. I'm going to walk over. I'm going to, I'm going to talk for a moment just because you keep talking. Uh, but that's a key part of editing any anthology, any magazine is that not only are you looking for the best stories, but you're also looking for the stories that fit either the theme, the magazine, the editorial taste. So, a lot of the stories that are rejected are not rejected because they're bad stories. They can be incredibly great stories. They just don't fit this particular place. Exactly. 
what were your thoughts initially once you guys launched the Kickstarter and obviously it took off really quickly? What was your reaction? I was stunned. I was amazed. It was incredible. I, I've done several Kickstarters before and a Kickstarter, it's usually posted as a 30-day campaign. If you reach your funding goal by 30 days, then everybody who has pledged actually pays. You get the money, you produce the book. And it, from my point of view, I'm just pre-selling books this way. So I know there's a sufficient audience to enable me to pay the authors to pay everybody in order to make the book happen. Um, so of that 30 days, the last bunch of Kickstarters I've run have taken 20 to 24 days to reach the funding goal. So I figured, okay, you know, we're, we're going to be doing this for three weeks to get to the funding goal. And then we'll have a couple of stretch goals. Maybe we can get a little bit more money after that. In four days, we hit the goal. I was stunned. My jaw, my jaw was on the floor at the speed with which people were so interested in this project that they said, yes, here's my money. Give me a book. <laughs> it, it was amazing. It was incredible. Our backers are fantastic. Um, that was great. The only problem was then I had to we had to create more stretch goals. Okay, what happens if we reach this level? What happens if we reach And on and on and on. So talking about we hit twice our funding goal, there's another book coming. That was that was a pipe dream. That was I wasn't expecting yeah. to be there. And as we were coming close to the end of the campaign and we hit that that twice mark and Michael was thrilled and I was thinking, what did I just do? What? I want to I want to say that what Ian said about you know I I mean I had two feelings. On the one hand I was gobsmacked. You know, in four days, we hit the goal. But I'd like to say, on the other hand, that, of course, we hit the goal, I, and this was me. You know, people know me. They like me. They're, of course, they were going to yeah, want to yeah, fund the book. Yeah. Right? You're not I, Brandon Sanderson. No, I'm, I'm not Brandon Sanderson. But, <laughs> well, that's but, why but, we I, didn't raise a million dollars. But the thing is that I think, you know, I mean, part of it, honestly, is it's the, the, a lot of people were attracted to the theme Jewish teachers. Yeah. I think a lot of people were attracted to the writers that we brought in here. I mean, you know, Harry Turtledove, one of the writers in the book, I really wanted for the book, had, years ago wrote what I think is one of the classic Jewish science fiction stories, The R-String, that appeared in Analog, about the genetic development of a kosher pig. You know, um, we had um, um, Leia Seifus, who's a, a longtime friend of mine, you know, writes a lot of Jewish fiction, writes a lot of fantasy. Um, you know, we, we had other writers in here. Um, uh, Bob Greenberger, who, um, has been a longtime comic book editor and, and novelist. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, I could name almost anybody, but, but they, I, a lot of people I thought there was, there's an audience out there who want stories from these people. And I thought there were people who, uh, you know, I think there were people out there who knew me who wanted to see, you know, um, to see what, what project I was going to do here. Uh, so and I have a very big family, so they, they funded. <laughs> yeah, you, you have a very big family. Um, yes, but so, now I know yeah. who funded and who didn't. I looked at the list, and I'm like, ah, I know who's who's on my good list now. I'll say that, that one audience out there I, that was really cool is that there, there are people out there interested in religious science fiction who are not necessarily Jewish or looking at Jewish science fiction, but they want to fund that. So, you know, I over the years, there's been Christian science fiction and Mormon science fiction um, I, I think there's, you know, there's been Muslim science fiction. So there were some people out there who are not necessarily Jewish, but said, oh, here's something, a project that's worth talking about or possibly even back. You know, so I, I appreciate that. Was, that. that was part of the thing that was surprising to me. I'm, I'm the only person who sees the entire list of backers. So if you want to remain anonymous, that's fine. You can do that. Um, or we can put whatever version of your name you want in the book. But my, my, my vast, edit, my vast office staff comprised of my parents, um, 
I was going through the list, creating labels to send out books and coming across names. Mom actually asked me, Are, is everybody who backed a Jewish? And I said, I didn't ask. But there are some names on this the list that I would be stunned and amazed if they were Jewish. Um, quite clearly, some of these names don't normally wind up on Jewish people. Um, the other thing about the Kickstarter that Mc really... Christian, Mc... I was going to say that Christian, uh, you know, Christian, going all the way up there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, but it was cool because, that, that, as Michael said, there are some people who just like to read these things and support them. But the other thing that really impressed me about the campaign is that with Kickstarter, once you've done one or two campaigns, a good chunk of your uh, backers each campaign are people who've been with you in previous projects. Like I recognize names of people who've contributed to all of my past projects. On this particular campaign, there are so many backers whose names I'd never heard before. So it was either the topic, it was Michael, or it was our authors drew in brand new to, to Fantastic Books readers. And that was incredible, I thought, because there are so many of them, so many people I didn't, whose names I didn't know going into it. That's so exciting. Um, can I ask, you mentioned that the response was, was really positive. Um, but obviously it's the internet and, you know, the Nazi rule can apply often. Um, did you have any pushback or negative, you know, response to it? Like, I, I just know sometimes when I talk about this stuff online, there's like, why does it need to be Jewish? Or, you know, that's not really Jewish. You're making it up, you know. Okay. So, so uh, well, okay, I can respond to a few things. I was worried about, to be honest, with you, was there going to be anything explicitly anti-Semitic or, or difficult uh, to deal with. I've had friends who have dealt with that. I, I've occasionally dealt with things like that. The only real pushback I got was there was, you know, and, and this wasn't directly at me, but there were people who were sharing this with, with their friends and on Facebook, and I ended up in one or two conversations. There was one person who was concerned, you know, and this is not something I want to, you know, I really want to get involved in a long discussion about. One person that was concerned that we were going to be, you know, like, Israel always comes up, the status of Israel. And, and I, you know, well, there, there was a concern about, you know, somebody was like saying, well, you know, Jew, you know Jewish people should have an anthology, you know, of, you know, of, of, of like this because, you know, like any other, you know, diverse or, or marginalized group. But, but, but they're worried about, you know, what is the book going to be, you know, like, like pushing Israel? And I basically, you know, well, first of all, if, if a, you know, I, I think of Jewish science fiction anthology was set all entirely in Israel, that would, be a fine anthology. There, there's two collections of Israeli science fiction out there. There's also an interesting, you know, other collection called Palestine Plus 100 that, that you know, um, has its own like that. But what I basically, you know, to this per particular pushback, I, I assured them, you know, it's a mix of stories. And, and actually, I asked specifically, I, I said, I want stories set all around the world if possible. And I, in the guidelines, when we were actually getting new stories, and I said to people, I'm not just looking for you know, Ashkenazi American Jews in the future. I mean, you know, what is out there? So, yeah, we have stories here um, set in, you know, we have one story set in Israel. We have one story set in a future where, where, they, where there's finally peace uh, between Israel and Palestine. We also have stories set in which, you know, um, you know, there, there's like other, another Jewish state. There's some interesting stuff in there. The other pushbacks that I got were, were fascinating to me because to me, it felt like a lot of people had their own feelings of ownership on my book. <laughs> so um, those of you who are, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners are, are in the Orthodox Jewish community. You know, I, I myself am modern Orthodox. 
Um, there has been a concern among a lot of us uh, about how women are erased from various you know, more orthodox publications. They won't have pictures of women on the inside their magazines. Uh, they, 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 it's one of these things that, that's bothersome. And so, you know, one, you know, person, you know, what, what, that's one way what to comment, phrase it, bothersome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, what was that? Say that again. I just said bothersome is a very nice euphemism for, for how upsetting for what that is. is yeah. Many of us, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, 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 so one person was, was you know, we, we had a, a sketch of possible cover art and one person was concerned, oh, it didn't look like there were going to be any women on the cover. And, you know, and this is someone who knows me and, and I, and I responded and it's like, you know, first of all, I felt a little bit almost like, you know who I am. Do you really think I'm going to not put a woman on the cover? And, and I, and I also said, would it help you if you realize that over half the authors I invited to the book are women. And, you know, I think this book has got more women than men in it. And, you know, it, it, it that, that seemed to not really, you know, that, that didn't seem to, uh, necessarily assuage the person, but it was definitely a, you know, a, a pushback there. You know, and there were other people who, again, were concerned, like, is this book going to be entirely, you know, you know, Ashkenazi Jews? You know, I, so I guess in a weird way, you know, a lot is some of the pushback I got was from, you know, uh, fellow members of the tribe because they wanted a book that would be for them that they would envision. I mean, it's been interesting because, you know, I've told, you know, people in my community about the book and I've been careful to many people to say, please note the book's title is Jewish Futures, not Orthodox Jewish Futures because, you know, they're going to start reading the book and I want them to be prepared, you know, for the possibility they may come to a story that was something they don't necessarily like, and I hope they will just skip to the next story. That's what I do if I'm reading an anthology and there's stuff I don't like. So, um, those were most of the elements of, uh, of, of pushback I got. I, I, I didn't get anything that I felt was explicitly anti-Semitic from any place. Um, and it was, um, and, and, and honestly, not even anything that was, that, that was explicitly anti-Israel. You know, it was really just more of people being concerned about what, what the stories would do. But, but again, you know, it did feel really interesting to me because I don't, I mean, you know, I, in one of his previous anthologies that he published was called Across the Universe. It's alternate story, alternate universe stories about the Beatles. And I don't know if, if Beatles fans like responded to the editor and said, you know, oh, you have to make sure not to do this or you have to do that. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't think that you would get so much of that, you know, um, whereas with, with a book like this, I think they're, they're you know, I, I wasn't actually expecting this type of uh, pushback, but that was the type of pushback I got. Yeah. And sometimes they word it the way, like, you know, I hope this isn't going to be just white Jews talking about things, you know, and with the implication being like, because I would never support something like that. Um so they try to be they try to be a little subtle about it, but it's subtle like a, a bag of hammers sometimes. I think that's one of the things that like you run into with a lot of Jewish representation because there are so many different kinds of Jews. I mean, obviously all groups are diverse in, in their, you know, internality, but like we you know, we all kind of hear Jewish and see ourselves. And, you know, when 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 you're dealing, especially in a, in something that should be as flexible and imaginative as sci-fi, you know, it's really, I can imagine that that would be a, a balancing act that, that you have to make sure that there is representation of different kinds of Judaism and also, you know, keeping it Jewish, which is a very difficult thing to define sometimes. 
I think the one rule I really put was especially on the on the open submissions and actually to the authors too, uh, who are the invited authors, was that you know you can write about anything, but Jews and Judaism should be represented in a positive light. You know, so I mean, which did not mean that if somebody wanted to write a story with like a non-observant Jewish character who was you know, rejecting Jewish observance. I, I, you know, I would not have had a problem with that, but, but I, I'm sort of reminded a little bit. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, um, uh, the late, um, Harry Kemmelman. He was a mystery writer and he wrote the, the, the rabbi small books, Friday, the rabbi, um, I don't remember what the rabbi did. Saturday, the rabbi went hungry. What's sorry, Friday, the rabbi slept late. Friday, the rabbi slept late. Saturday, the rabbi went hungry. Um, you know, all these, you know, he did it by the days of the week. It was about this detective, this rabbi was an amateur detective, Rabbi David Small, in a small town in Massachusetts. And, um, every book involves a murder mystery. And one thing I noticed as I read these books, and, and by the way, they're very interesting. You could go back and read them today. They're very dated. They, you know, very much a part, they're, they're really very dated in where they were in the sixties. But on the other hand, you know, contemporary mysteries become historical mysteries. Um, but what I noted is that, um, it was never a Jew who was the murderer in any of the books. <laughs> and that may be a little bit of a spoiler for people reading them, but you know, there's often Jewish characters who may be one of the, you know, possible suspects in a murder, but in the end, it was never one of the Jewish characters who committed a murder. And, um, and so, you know, for, for when I was, you know, putting together Jewish futures, I did not want a book in a stories in which, you know, a Jewish person is seen as, as, as the bad guy per se, but not, not to say that there aren't, you know, characters here who are, I would say, antagonists or, or things like that. And, and there are, you know, there, there are some stories where a Jewish person does something that we would consider, uh, you know, possibly, you know, illegal or unethical or immoral, but it's not, necess- but it's not, you know, it's not necessarily because of them being Jewish or following Judaism, as it were. So. It'll be about them being human, and the whole point of showing, you know, sci-fi is about exploring ways to be human, and so this is, you know, we added an extra dimension of showing how to be human in the future while being Jewish, and so you get, like, yeah, you get a whole 3D picture that way um, that you won't get in other places, because there's just not that specificity of it. If that makes yeah, sense, that makes sense. And and I mean, and the other thing is, I obviously I wanted to avoid stereotypes and and anti-Semitic stereotypes as much as possible. But that said, again, you know, you have this question of of, of representing human beings as human beings. Uh, if I may take an example from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, yes, please. Um, I don't know how many people have seen the TV show Moon Knight. Moon Knight is a fascinating character um, because he's a Jewish superhero, but he's got all of this. Um, weird background even to the point where he's you know he gets his powers from an egyptian god um and my family we 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 loved the marvel cinematic universe i have one uh daughter who just watches that the other daughter reads the comics we were very disappointed with moon knight and especially the jewish representation when we got to it because the jewish representation felt very um I heard it seemed tacked on from what I read. It, 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 it didn't seem so tacked on as it, it, it felt like it was in some ways a condemnation of the character. It's like the only time we really see his Jewish representation, we see him with his family, his family, you know, bad things have happen. His family does bad things. And he basically, there's this dramatic scene where, you know, he's like, you know, after at, at a Shiva, he just can't take what's going on. And he, he literally takes a kippah off his head and throws it on the ground. And 
what I what I said, what I've said about this is that you know the, the Jewish representation here it fits the character what he did, but it doesn't really play well when this is the only Jewish representation we've had in this cinematic universe so far. You know, if you're going to you know, and, and, and definitely if you want to contrast it with something like Ms. Marvel, uh, where, where, you know, one Muslim friend of mine, you know, who I showed him some scenes and was asking about, said, yeah, this is right, this is right, this is right. You know, I mean, the, the character of Moon Knight, you know, his Judaism, it, 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 it does feel, I guess, a little bit tacked on, but it also feels like, you know, they, they, they put it in there and said, here's Jewish representation. But it's like, but it's not good Jewish representation. Yeah. You know, now, now if you had shown me, you know, Hours before of, let's say, you know, of, of another Jewish superhero doing something, you know, good or, or normal or whatever, just or, or incorporate part of their lives. And then you have the Jewish character who throws the keep on the ground. I'd be like, OK, that's a character part. That's it. But that's his character. But when it's the only thing that you're seeing in all of these hours of movies and television that says it's explicitly Jewish, that's the problem. And yeah. so, you know, yeah. And what I found interesting when I heard about um, just the making of Moon Knight, it seems that they were went very heavily on the uh, Egyptian consultants, and they wanted all of that to be very sensitively portrayed and very uh, historically accurate and all of that, but they didn't have any Jewish consultants. Well, they did have a Jewish consultant. Yeah, they, they did. She didn't, either wasn't listened to or didn't do a great job. <laughs> and I, I don't want to, you know... Yeah, I don't want to have to, you know, go into, um, you know, the issue of sensitivity readers is that obviously if you have one person, they're never going to catch all the things that you could possibly catch, um, which is why it's it's very complicated um, to write for something or to, to create something with representation that you don't have experience with. Um, not to say that it can't be done, but anyway, um, that's a tangent for this. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if we talk about Moon Knight and Miss Marvel, we'll be here. For well, I, 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 do, I do want to add something. We, we are going a little far afield, but to give another example of, there's a TV show now called Ghosts. There's a British version, American version. One of the ghosts and ghosts, the American version, is a Jewish guy. He is not at all observant, but he is good Jewish representation. I've enjoyed watching him. He's, he's not he's not a saint, but he's not evil. He's, he's, a, he's a human He's just a regular human being, except he's dead, so he's a ghost. <laughs> um, but but I've really enjoyed his Jewish representation, and because some of it comes off like he's just using you know a few phrases and words, and then you meet his family, you see other things, and, and you realize you know this is a, you know it's like you know this is a realistic Jewish guy. It may not be me, but it is somebody who's being portrayed sensitively. And, and so bringing it back to Jewish futures, which is what this is all supposed to be about, you know, I wanted to make sure that we had a range of Jewish characters that were being written about by the writers. I wanted characters of, you know, you know, of all different types of, of, of what it means to be Jewish. Um, you know, so it wasn't going to be a book full of Orthodox Jews. It wasn't going to be a book full of Reformed Jews. You know, it was going to be a book of people who, you know, however you would define it, you know, who definitely would say, yes, this is a Jewish story. This is a Jewish character. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of how we've done a previous episode with um, editors of like just a modern young adult um, Jewish anthology called It's a Whole Spiel. And they had, I know they had a range of, of things, but I felt like it did lean a bit heavily on the non-observant side. And I didn't find very much for me in that 
uh, in that anthology and that collection. Um, and so I really appreciated that this collection, aside from, you know, my own story, which gave me an opportunity to write the kind of um, representation I would like to see, it also had, you know, all different kinds. And it felt like it was a much more encompassing picture than um, than that one happened to be. Well, thank you, I say. <laughs> On that note, um, can we turn to SM's story and talk about that a little bit? I'm I'm interested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I actually told Michael I didn't think I could write a story for this anthology when he first approached me. I was like, I haven't written uh, any Jewish fiction. I mostly, you know, I write um, for Escape. So Judaism is a bit too, you know, close to home and too real. And I don't I don't generally find it appealing to write about. Um, but I had written this one scene that um, I'd originally published as a Facebook note back when the Facebook back when Facebook had a notes feature. I kind of used it as my blog and a lot of people would read my stuff. Um, and I would just, you could post long form stuff and it was a slightly different format from the way that, uh, Facebook works now. If you just have a, you know, a post and you have see more, uh, it was, it was a much better platform for long form posts at the time. And I had collected, uh, a lot of my notes into a book that I do intend to self publish at some point. Uh, and Michael had very graciously volunteered to read that. Uh, collection, and he uh, had come across this one scene that I had written when I was 18, and I think it was one of the few pieces of fiction that I wrote while I was doing my gap year in, abroad in Israel, and I had been inspired by um, a lesson that I'd had in a class that had discussed a particular aspect of a midrash that I hadn't heard. I'd heard the, the midrash before, but I hadn't heard this particular aspect, and so then I wrote a scene between two characters uh, where they were discussing this midrash. Um, and one of them was, they were both uh, characters with superpowers. And one of them was using the midrash to try and encourage the other to be more open to using her powers for good. And so all I had was that scene of them discussing the midrash. And I, uh, and I told Michael, so what if I had ideas to expand this into a story? And Michael was like, go for it. <laughs> 100% go for it. And I was like, you're sure? And he was like, yes, absolutely go for it. And so I, uh, I started brainstorming and I, I built a story ar around it. And I, I came up with, I came up with a, a, a setting for it that I hadn't, I had, I had originally envisioned it slightly differently because the characters had been set in a particular timeline of like just more contemporary times, but because it was supposed to be set in the future, I could play around with that a bit more and I could add more to the universe and expand where I felt like the, the people were and where, um, where society was at the time uh, and the possibility of, of aliens and space travel. And I could just add in whatever I wanted because it was my story. <laughs> So that's what I did. And um, yeah, and I worked on it a lot and on and off because when Michael first approached us to 
to write the stories, it was like a couple of years before the Kickstarter actually launched. Um, so I had time, but of course I was, I always feel last minute about it. So I had, you know, I had brainstormed and I had written stuff, but once we finally had the Kickstarter and we had the deadline, that's when I really buckled down and finished it. Um, and it was supposed to be 5,000 words. But when I was writing it, I said to Michael, it's getting long and I think it's going to be over 5,000 words. And because um, I'm, I don't write that many short stories. I'm primarily a novelist is how I see my writing style. So I, uh, so I, I warned Michael that I was going over and he said, oh, don't worry about the word count. And I took that too literally. <laughs> and I, so um, what was the editing SM like? Yeah. Well, he, you're, you're, he you're, was very nice because he uh, he encouraged me to edit myself. Um, and like once I submitted it, you t you told me, okay, so I have these suggestions. I want you that I want to see if you can incorporate, and I would appreciate it if you could cut it down to under twelve thousand words. Um, and I managed to both add in Michael's stuff and cut down um, the extra words. Uh, cause like there were certain things that I had marked up for myself that I was like, if I have to cut, I can cut this. Or if I have to cut, I can cut that. But then I also went through with a more fine tooth comb of like, well, I can cut this word here and I can contract these two words here, you know, and just getting myself words wherever I could possibly find them. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. And I was worried that it would drag and that people would find it, um, difficult to read, um, but so far, the reactions that I've gotten from people, because I I tell people that, like, most of the story is just two people in a room talking and the other. So it's like 90 percent of the story is that. And the other 10 percent is one person in a room not talking to anybody. Uh, and I was worried that it wouldn't that it wouldn't, you know, play well with an audience. But so far, I've gotten really good responses um, from people who have been like you know i think the pacing was really good and they didn't they found it fun they found it emotional and um they didn't feel like it was a long story even though it was a very long story you know you knew sm so you invited her but i was curious about ian's reaction to sm's story it was very good i i enjoyed reading it um it was a bit longer than the rest of the stories in the book but it was as long as it needed to be to tell the story that it was telling I wish any story. I, I do wish to put it that Ian got it after I had edited it. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yes, know, after it, we had edited it down, um, and I sent so, my yeah. my shortened version. Um, so what, what 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 I will say is that I mean, there, there's many different rules there about trying to edit a story and and what you need to do. I remember, I, I remember, I think it, Stephen King has a rule that, like he says, second draft is first draft minus ten percent. You know, if you if you if someone who writes along, that's something you should do. One of my favorite pieces of advice came from the writer Dwight Swain, who says, you know, your your editor tells you they like the story, but you need to cut it down by a thousand words or whatever. What do you do? And he says very simply, you cut fact, you do not cut emotion. You know, a short story is different from a novel in many ways, and we could have an entire program about it, which would not necessarily fall under the category of, of, of nice Jewish fangirls. But essentially, when you're doing a short story, you really often have to focus on what, what is really the most important thing you have to, that you're trying to get across here. And what you really want to do is get the emotional response from the reader. You know, so 
uh, you know, if, you, if you've described somebody's, you know, shirt as being, you know, red, maybe you get rid of the word red. You know, I, if, I, I'm not, that's just a very simplistic example. Yeah. But, you know, but the other thing I will, as I will note is when one of you asked how it was like editing SM, you know, almost in general, with almost all the, I, I edited all the stories pretty much in the book. I think there, I'm not going to say which stories were perfect in the beginning, which weren't, because <laughs> um, perfect is not really the word I would use there. But, um, you know, but there were some, you know, there were some writers, uh, you know, who I, I don't think he would be angry if I said I even asked Harry Turtledove to make a few changes. Um, but, you know, professional writers, you know, when, when you, when you're asked to make a change, the editor usually is trying to make the story better. They're trying to make it work better. And I've been edited like that. And I, I did an anthology once and I sent in a story. There's a story I have in a book called Heroes in Training edited by Jim Hines. And he came back to me and, and said, can you make these changes? Can you fix something? I'm like, yeah, sure. I did it. Um, the, the one place where you want to stick to your guns is if the editor wants to change what your entire story is about. Um, Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes is the classic example. That story kept being rejected over and over because uh, every editor wanted him to end the story as a happy ending. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and, and Keyes refused to. And finally, uh, I think it was Ed, Ed Furman, is that his name? At, at Fantasy and Science yes, Fiction. Magazine Fantasy, yeah, at the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction said, I know what you're trying to say, uh, and I'm going to just let the story run as it did. It, it won major awards. It got expanded to a novel. It got turned into a movie. But, but even if you, if you read, you know, Daniel Keyes wrote a memoir at one point about Flowers for Algernon and talks about how even when it was being turned into other forms, there were people who kept wanting it to be changed to make it a happy ending story. And that's not the story he was trying to tell. So, um, in, in this case, I, I basically looked at what the story that SM was trying to tell. And I said, you know, here are some things, advice for you. And I, I didn't, I didn't go in and do it myself because, you know, the writer has to be able to own what they're doing. I, I said, you need to cut it down. Let's get it below 12,000 words. I mean, we, we had, we were trying to have stories of 5,000 words in the book. And if you have a few stories that are longer than 5,000, you know, I, I will tell you that the one thing that, that does make it difficult is that, um, if every story in the book were under, you know, 7,500 words, it all fall into the same award category of best short story. And, you know, so people want to fill out nominating ballots for the Hugo and Nebula. You know, they would know that every story falls under short story. At this point, you know, um, Moon Melody, I think, is a novelette, I believe, is the category falls under. So um, That's what I know. told her. <laughs> she was like, yeah. here, it's like 10,000 words. I'm like, girl, that's a novella. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Once once I got there, I was... Yeah. Novella starts at 17.5. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, but I, I didn't mean, get anywhere close to seventeen five. I just want to say, and yeah, also, no. um, Venus, have we got a rabbi? Is is longer than mine, so I feel better about that. <laughs> yes, but you'll notice that I did not publish on Venus. Have we got a rabbi? <laughs> and in, in fact, that was that was the other thing. When when people ask me about pushback, you know, with the now that we've been announcing the book on social media that hey, it's now available, and people who didn't even know it existed who missed the Kickstarter, I I, I continue to get the weirdest questions. One person asked me, why didn't I include on Venus that we got a rabbi? Yeah. And, and I, I replied, because this is a, a collection of all original stories. <laughs> you know, that, that story is not an yeah, original story. Yeah, there are a lot of, there's some stories in here that were like very clearly paying homage to on Venus that we got a rabbi. Um, the, 
there's a, the narrative style, I think, in, was it um, Rachel Nussbaum Saves the World by Esther Friesner? Yeah. Um, that one very much reminded me of the, the narrative style of there's a, a person telling, telling the story in first person, and they're speaking to an unseen and unheard second person you know, audience person. Um, but you don't see the person reacting, but you see the narrator reacting to the person's reactions. And um, it's a, it's a, it's a fun little, uh, little gimmick that way. And it was very reminiscent. But that story is entirely Esther's voice. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, but yeah, I mean, it feel, it, feel, it does feel, it's Esther's voice does feel like William Penn's uh, type of story. But yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's, you know, there were, remember I mentioned people had ownership on this book. You know, I, I had people out there, you know, when, when I was taking open submission, uh, I had people asking, Oh, could I, could I write a comic script for it? Are you going to publish a graphic novel part in the book? And I was like, No, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love to, but no, that's not what this book is. I had, um, I, I'm, I'm a member of the Science uh, Fiction Poetry Association, although it may, it may even now be the Speculative Fiction Poetry. I, you know, I had people asking if we we're going to publish poems. And I have nothing against poetry, but no, I wasn't going to do that. You know, it, that's not what this book is. So, so again, it's there, beyond there, there the scope be, of this book. There, there, I mean, yeah, and there, I mean, again, this seems to be a very odd sense of ownership that other people had, you know, over over this book, which I will tell you, I, I feel a very strong sense of ownership on this book, and um, um, you know, I, I'll tell you probably the, 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 there, there are a few things I want to mention about the book and, and about the open submissions that you know thing. But one of the, the things I am delighted by, I cannot tell you how much this thrills me, is that Jack Dan was willing to write an introduction for this book. You know, it, it's I, I as I said, I really consider Jewish Futures the spiritual success of the Wandering Stars so much that 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 Ayn and I actually were once seriously discussing whether we wanted to get permission from Jack to call this Wandering Stars 3. And, you know, we decided not to for a variety of reasons, you know, one of which is, you know, how many people out there would necessarily remember Wandering Stars and wandering and more Wandering Stars? Uh, you know, I'm, 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 a lot of us would, but, you know, it's like if you're, if you're trying to sell the book on, you know, to, to bookstores today, and you, you know, people will be like looking for the first ones, and, they, and it's not from the same publisher. But also, to some extent, yes, it's a spiritual successor, but this is still, I think, in many ways, my book. Um, and, um, and, in, and in fact, can I talk about like one or two things about the open submissions? Uh, sure. Would that be all right with you guys? And just, uh, you know, two of the things yeah. that I'm, I'm delighted by. So, Absolutely. like, like a, Okay, so uh, since SM is one of the co-hosts, I feel I'm, I've given, given <laughs> the right to do that. So, like I said, I, I, I opened it up to submissions. In the end, there were five stories that I really wanted to uh, to accept, and, and there's some interesting you know stories about those here. Um, two of these stories, three of these stories, were by writers I had never heard of, didn't know. Um, two of them were actually by writers I did know. One of them is, is the only non-Jewish author in the book. You know, and even our cover artist, Ellie Portman, is Jewish. But the only non-Jewish author in the book is uh, Shane Turtelot, who is a award-nominated writer who's published an analog. He's a friend of mine. He and I had actually, you know, wrote a novella together once. Uh, I, he was one of the people I encouraged to send a story to me. Uh, and it's actually funny. It took me a while to get through the stories. And while I was still going through them, I get a, a note from Shane to the effect of, I guess by now you've probably rejected my story. I'll try it somewhere else. I had to call him and say, don't do that. <laughs> um, he wrote this story called The Kuiper Gemara, which I, I, I was like, it felt like he was, you know, like he had swallowed a Talmud. I was like, how did you write? He, he does this research. 
Um, Barbara Krasnoff is a Jewish writer of science fiction. And it's, it's interesting. The one other time I ever edited like this, I edited a guest issue of Apex magazine many years ago. And I accepted a story from her back then, too, just, you know, over submissions. So it's kind of funny because, you know, I, I actually know Barbara. We're not close friends. I, I, I know who she is. I, her husband um, does the radio show Hour of the Wolf. So I've been on that a few times. But I just find it amusing that she always writes something I want to publish. Um, and then I have these three other writers. Um, uh, there, there's a writer named uh, Riv Begun. I think I pronounced her name correctly. She's from the United States, but she lives in Switzerland. She wrote a story I was really uh, interested in publishing, Proof of Alina. And then I had these two stories. Um, there was a story by a guy named Jordan King LaCroix called The Last Chosen. Uh, he's from Canada and lives in Australia now. And the story is actually set in Sydney. You know, again, one of the things I really wanted was not just everything set in the United States and Israel. Um, and his story and this other story I really wanted was a story called Shema by Samantha Kapp. And I open and close the anthology deliberately with these stories because they're both stories about the last Jew on earth. Um, and I really, I, I felt that it was really good. And I was like, you know, I want to open with this story, Shema by Samantha Katz. It's an incredibly powerful kick in the gut story. And this is where I have a funny story about this. So I have all these submissions. I had to reject a bunch of things. I, I, I have an email. The, you don't have to send a cover letter when you're submitting a story. Usually you do, even just to say, I've been closing the story. I hope you find it of interest. Uh, this particular writer I never heard of. Um, she, all she had sent me was the link to the, the Google Doc, which was what I'd asked. I said, please send me either a link to a Google Doc or, or a Word document. I read the story. I wanted to buy it. I emailed her back. I said, I want the story. I'm going to need your bio because I want to, we want to say who are the new, who are the new, uh, you know, authors of the book. I don't hear from her for about a day. I'm like, I emailed her back. Did you hear? I, I do want to buy your stories. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I did hear. I just need to take care of you. Things like, okay, can, can I get a bio from you? So she sends a bio and I start reading it. Samantha Katz is a New York City public high school student. And I go, what? I'm sorry, what? And, and I take another look and I say to Ian, Ian, I just bought a story by a high school kid. Um, Ian and I have actually met her. Um, you know, she is, um, I, I, she sent a story. And, and are yes. we allowed to meet her? Or There's no problem her? except, except a, a, a high school student. She's not old enough to legally sign a contract. I had to get her parents to sign the contract. That was my question because yeah. I, I'm a journalist and like, I can't talk to, to underage, like I cover K-pop. So there's a lot of, well, we, we didn't seek her out. She came to us, um, knowing exactly what we were doing and her, with her parents approval. Sure. There, there's a history That's of great. people in, in science fiction. 12, I mean, there, there's a phrase that the, the golden age of science fiction is 12. Meaning that when you're 12, the stories you read, the things that evoke that sense of wonder would stay with you. And many people, I, I, including me, you know, I was 12 years old. I was sending stories to amazing stories, to Asimov's, to Analog, trying to publish and not getting anywhere because my stories, I think the technical term for it was that they were bad. Um, <laughs> and, um, and eventually I got to a point, you know, 10 years later when I was able to publish stories. But, but yeah, I mean, there's nothing against it. I just, I was, I was, I, I actually had searched for this writer trying to find who is this writer? I mean, what else has she published? I wasn't finding anything. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's funny because, um, it, the story actually gets worse for people like I and me because when, when we finally met her and, and, and her dad and had a chance to talk with her, um, we found out that, so there's actually a story. She actually met Ian beforehand because she had gone to a, 
science fiction convention, Capclave, I think, right, I am? And yeah, you, were, yeah, you did a panel, you did a panel about, like, selling stories, or you did one of your no, usual her panels. Aunt, that... her aunt came by the table and asked if I'd be willing to talk with her niece, who was a budding science fiction writer. And I said, sure, I'm willing to talk to anybody. So apparently Samantha came to the table and talked with me. And, you know, when I'm at a science fiction convention, I'm the guy selling the books, and everybody knows my name because they're all coming to talk to me. Unfortunately, there are several hundred people at these conventions. I don't remember everybody. And this was only one interaction, so I have no memory of it. It ha- it happens. It happens. Uh, Isaac Asimov, in his autobiography, talks about the first time he met his wife, Janet. that, And she tells the story because he has no memory of it. So he says, this is what Janet tells me happened, and I have no reason not to believe it. And then years later, they met again, and, and eventually they got married. Um but yeah, but apparently, from what I understand, uh, Samantha asked Ian questions about publishing and writing stories, and I don't know what advice he gave, but it obviously it worked. But in the middle of this conversation... She did ask, she did ask if, if I was reading stories, and I said, well, not me personally, but yes, we're going to be publishing Jewish Futures, and we'll have an open call, check the website. Yeah, that, that was yeah, that was exactly what I was about to mention, was that oh. yes, she, he told... No, but it's fine, because you were the one who was there, I wasn't. He told her, Jewish Futures exists, and we're going to be having a submission call. So, for what she told us is that apparently she hadn't, she didn't yet have a story idea, but on the train back from Capclave, she started coming up with an idea that might work for Jewish futures. So, she wrote it, she sent it, and this was the first time she ever submitted a story for professional publication anywhere. And right out of the box, the editor, you know, bought the story. And, and, and the editor, me, I didn't buy the story because of who this person was. I, I didn't buy the story because it's like, oh, wow, I'm, and this is going to really, you know, I need this author. I bought this story because, and this is why you really should be publishing stories because it's a good story and it fits what you're trying to do. And I, and I bought this story. Um, and it turns out to be your first professional publication. And, uh, I, I just, I, and I, and I, I, others, you know, have been responding the way I have to this story. And it's both galling and thrilling that it's her first professional publication. And (laughs) it's galling because, you know, it took me forever to make my first sale. But it's really good that she actually got around to telling us that in the bio before the book was published. Because (laughs) I've been in this magazine for a couple of years. And, you know, reading submissions and publishing, it was a science fiction magazine, science and science fiction. And every single issue had an author's first sale. But not one of those authors ever told me it was their first sale until after I handed them a copy of the magazine and it was too late to do any sort of publicity. So this time, finally, at least I can say, hey, not only is this a wonderful book and you should read the book because it's great and it's all really good. But I can also say it's also got an author's first sale in it, which is Good. It's another publicity hook for the book. Yeah, and I want to meet Samantha because I was I was a uh, my first novel was published when I was sixteen. So like I wa- I feel like we would have common ground, but <laughs> I haven't met her yet, and I don't want to like be pushy about it. Well, you know, I, I look what I would suggest. You have the contact information. Email her parents. You know, you can include me on the email. You know, just yeah. I mean, I'm sure she'd be happy to talk to you. Too. I mean, look, I, we, we, when, when we brought when I brought her in, you know, so so, so this is something that Michal and Tamar don't know about. But once I brought in the new writers, actually, I wasn't just asking for bios; I was asking for photos. And you know, she was at first wondering, do I need to provide a photo? And when I found out she was a high school student, I was like, you don't need a photo. Don't worry about it. I'm not about <laughs> to, you know, but um, 
I, you know, I, I brought in the authors in sort of like in a whole email chat with all the authors in the book, just letting them know what we're doing, publicity, things like that. And, and all these writers, you know, welcomed her into it. You know, so you've got, I mean, it's the sort of thing I, I, I would have dreamed of, you know, here's like, you know, Harry Turtledove and Esther Friesner, you know, saying, Hey, you're a new writer. Welcome, welcome to the ranks. So, although I, I did get that when I published my first story in analog, you know, all the way back in 1995, I mean, I am called, you know, welcome me to it. Other people, you know, I, I started meeting writers. I actually, oh, that's actually another interesting story in the book. I, um, one of the authors in the book is Susan Schwartz. And, you know, Susan ha- has written for many years, been award nominated, written, I, I think co-authored Star Trek novels. Um, Susan hadn't been writing, uh, recently for, for a while. And, um, we brought her in as one of the extra authors, you know, when we were, as one of the stretch goal authors. Well, Back in 1994, when I had come back from the Clarion workshop, um, what the, the editor there, Claire Eddy, had, had brought with her, I think, a directory for the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America and said, find a science fiction writers who live in your area and reach out to them. You know, maybe they'll, they'll get together with you. And it turned out that, you know, I, I was living in Forest Hills, Queens, where I grew up, and Susan was living in Forest Hills, Queens. And I, I got her email address. I emailed her. I, I just called emailed her and said, I just went to Clarion. I've been trying to write science fiction. Um, I, I got, you know, this is how I got your name. And she's like, oh, let, let's meet. And she, you know, we, we, we went, uh, I, I think we had lunch or, or coffee or something. Uh, and we talked and she told me about writing science fiction in the publishing world and, 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 and she was helpful. And, and she told me about events and things I should go to. And I feel so delighted years later, I, I paid her back. I mean, normally in our industry, we talk about paying it forward. You know, Robert Heinlein said that, you know, it's like when somebody does a favor for you as a new writer, you know, what, how do you pay them back? You don't, you pay them forward. You're going to, you're going to help the next new writer. And, and, and in sort of in this position, I mean, like in this book, I've done both. You know, I, I, I've published a new story by Susan Schwartz, and I think it's her first new story in a few years. And she's been writing and writing, you know, before and since then, you know, now. And I've published this, you know, this other person, Samantha Katz's first story, you know, so, so I both paid it forward and paid it back, uh, with this book. And, and, uh, I was just, I'm, I'm delighted to have been able to do that. It's a really nice symmetry to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, on the topic of futures, um, our last question actually is, um, you've mentioned that you have, you know, surpassed your, your goals, um, and you have enough, it says here for a second volume. So what is the future for Jewish futures? Ian, Ian, let's start with you. <laughs> actually, Michael and I were talking about that this afternoon. Um, first, of course, we have to get this book actually properly launched, which is next week is the pub date. And then August 23rd is the event at Brookline Booksmith. And we're hoping to do an event in New York City at some point somewhere as well, as soon as we can find a date and a venue. Um, beyond that, yeah, there's going to be another volume. And at the moment, it looks like the title is going to, the title is going to be Jewish Futures 2. Because Michael is quite eager to turn this into a series of anthologies. Not back to the future? That's what we would name our episode. All right, Michael, you should change the title of the anthology. Maybe why you should. I think she would. <laughs> there, there, uh, there are many possible titles that people suggest them to me, but there's going to be did... a subtitle, I think, to go yeah, with it. Yeah, the subtitle so. will be Electric Boogaloo. 
But, but no, I no, no, no. The subtitle <laughs> is the wrath of um, uh, the wrath of the wrath of the wrath the wrath of Madeline Kahn. Um, <laughs> no, I was thinking Myra Kahane, but okay. I did talk to Ian. Here's the thing: Wandering Stars. The second book was more Wandering Stars, which is a good title. But then the problem is that it's alphabetically not in the right order. If you're looking for the Wandering Stars series, are you, you know how easy you going to find it? Jewish Futures 2 is not an exciting title, per se, but as I was talking to Ian, again, I, I can't, we don't know if this is going to be the way it goes, but I, I would like to turn this into, you know, possibly an annual or biannual series. And, you know, there are, there's another, there are other series out there that go by title and they have two, three, four. So, you know, I, it, it might be simple to do Jewish Futures 2 and then Jewish Futures 3, Jewish Futures 4. And at least that way they would be shelved in the right order and you would always know where to find it. Um, so that's, that's one thought for the title. I can hear that. I, Jewish futures, Jewisher and futurer. <laughs> that, that would work, right? <laughs> Jewisher <laughs> futures. I mean, we, we, we did also have the idea of, of doing a second book and calling it Jewish fantasy as a, as a more of a fantasy yes, science fiction. Ooh. But well, except here's the thing. I've already decided, even if we call it Jewish futures too, we're not, we're going to expand it out to fantasy stories. You know, I mean, it's not just going to be the future. So I'll say, look, it's called Jewish Futures too, but if you want to write a story set in the past, if you want to write a story set in a fantasy alternate world, whatever you want to do, if it's Jewish speculative It's going to be sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah, See, be, I, I thought I, I mean, you were going to say that the book number two was going to be Jewish past, <laughs> and then you have just <laughs> fantasy stuff going on there, but... I, I mean, you know, I mean, th this book actually does have some of the stories in here are, are not quite Exactly, science fiction, or, or you know, I mean, I mean, we, we've got some it's zombie, zombie story in, in the book. Yeah. It's not science yeah. fiction, okay? And, 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 and there's another scientifically zombie-esque virus sort of thing, right? That that counts. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we have one story that could be considered, you know, sort of a fantasy story. I don't want to give away which one it is, but it's a science fiction story that might lead into a fantasy. I mean, we've got we have a Helm story. You know, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was trying aiming for science fiction in the future, but even if we call it Jewish Futures 2, 3, 4, whatever we end up doing, yeah, I think I'm going to... Kids Speak, you know, like that's, you know, the the Kids Speak series was very successful. Not, Just not one sure if Kids Speak is what you want to model. No, nah, I know, we don't want to model it on that, but, because uh, uh, obviously I am Walder, but... <laughs> yeah, we could model it on it, but I don't really want to I don't think yes, kids we don't speak. want to draw the direct we, comparison. We, we found ourselves in a situation where we had to tell one of our kids about what had happened, and oh, no. we, we're still trying to decide what to do with our kids' speak volumes. Ian has no uh, idea what we're talking about here. Let's just say that the author of this series turned out not to be who people thought he was, and it's um, you can you can as, as Tom Lehrer would put it, you can all go look it up when you get home. Um, no, I'm too busy dealing with Tom Lair for other things. Yeah. So, Paul, you asked a question. Projects. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you asked a question about the title? Uh, no, I mean, just in general, kind of what, what are your kind of goals for volume two, what, whatever it may be called? Like, what have you learned from this experience that you would do better or do more of or do less of next time? I, we have learned two things, which is uh, no footnotes. No Hebrew texts, uh, you know, and, and and probably not a glossary either. 
one of the hardest things to deal with, I, I mean, these are really things that Ian had to deal with, you know, more than I did because he was handling the formatting. But, um, some people had, I, I don't want to, I don't want to call it the authors, not their fault. And I was willing to, you know, to accept it, but we have some stories that are heavily footnoted. And since mm-hmm. there's more than one and there's footnotes in the intro, you start having the problem. How do you make sure the footnotes get organized properly in the ebook and the print book? Uh, we had one author that, that put in, you know, we have Hebrew letters and you know how this comes up all the time. Hebrew is read from right to left, not left to right. You try to insert a Hebrew word in an English book and something goes all wrong. And, and yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so we, we, I, I have decided that for the next book, I'm going to say explicitly, no, we're not going to let anyone do this. You know, if you, if you feel the need to footnote, go with a glossary, you know, or if you, if you, if you want to put in Hebrew, just do transliterated English. As, as a lot of the story have, it look, you know, the, the first story is Shema. Yeah, that's you know, what the, I the did. Yeah. yeah, I, I mean, it is, it is, uh, it, it's just, it's gonna, it's gonna make things easier for, for formatting the book. And, um, I, I, I think I will appreciate that. What? Yes, I will. But I, I also learned that I'm going to limit the number of words Michael can speak in any one phone conversation <laughs> or any one. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. Can, can you see that I'm very enthusiastic about this? Yes, and that's great. one of the reasons I, I enjoy great. working with you because it's, it's so much easier to have an enthusiastic author who you have to tone down than to have somebody who's too quiet and you've got to amp them up. Well, thank you both so much. Um, we're super excited for you know the book to come out. What what day is the release date again? Because Ian apparently has trouble reading calendars, the official publication date is August 7th. And I say that because in the publishing world, books are almost always released on a Tuesday. For some reason, I have no idea why or how, I set the date as August 7th, which is Monday. But the book becomes available Monday, August 7th. If you are somebody who is inclined to purchase the book at an online retailer and would feel like doing so on the publication date, we would love that because that tends to amp up the sales rank and makes it look better everywhere else in the world. Um, But the book will be available continually from that date on, so don't feel like you have to rush right out and grab it today. This episode might not come out until after the book is, you know, officially published. Even so if our <laughs> listeners are listening and they feel bad that they missed the day, don't feel bad. Just buy it anyway. No worries. <laughs> no, we, we appreciate your patience whenever it comes. Fantasticbooks.biz is the website. We've got links to the online retailers. You can get the ebook direct from us. And you can also check it out for our forthcoming projects as we list them. If you want to be involved in Jewish futures too. I, I, w- I will say that Ian's mistake on the date was very serendipitous because um we are going to have a essay one of the the big idea essays on john scalzi's whatever blog and um he's giving us monday august 7th as our slot because that's the publication date of the book you know i think most people want to grab the slot on the day their books are published and he can't provide everybody with the tuesday slot so the fact that that ian ended up choosing monday as the pub date i think you should um, do this every time <laughs> It, 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 it worked out well. And, and, and our, our plans for Jewish Futures too, uh, as Ian said, you've got to check the fantasticbooks.biz website. All the information will be there. But, um, we're, we're, it, it, that book has been promised already as an ebook to the backers of the, uh, of the original Kickstarter. So, you know, that, that we're not doing a Kickstarter for that book. Um, but I am going to approach the book the same way I did this one. Uh, I'm going to put together a list of authors that I'd like to invite into the book, uh, talk to them about 
the story, <laughs> the stories that they, they, they want to write for the book. You know, again, I, I want I don't want to have 16 golem stories. Um, and I'm going to, uh, one, once I know, you know, who I've got for that, who, who's able to give me that, I think I, and we're going to end up probably again with like four or five or maybe six slots, maybe high, you know, for, you know, um, uh, open submissions and we'll announce open submission. Uh, right. I think that's the plan. I'm going to tell you how much we can spend on the content. And right. then you as the editor are going to figure out how many authors you're going to invite and how many you're going to read over the transom. So there we go. But yes, the, the plan, you know, we're, we're not, we're not trying to, uh, sell this book over Kickstarter, you know, as before, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I do have some authors in mind who I'd like to find out if they have ideas that I think would work for the book. Uh, and, you know, um, and I, I'd like to, um, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to start putting that together. And, you know, I have some authors who have already approached me who have been, you know, and also I had some authors who I had to reject who wrote good stories, but just not what I wanted. And I want to go to them and say, look, I do want to put a story from you in this book, but not that one that you wrote before. Do you have another idea? Fantastic. Well, that's super exciting. Um, I'm, you know, us at Nice Jewish Fangirls are always, you know, super excited to see the world of Jewish sci-fi and fantasy expanding. And yeah, this is a really amazing step in that direction. Um, so we'll have all the links to everything in our, I guess, description, our episode description. And thank you so much to Ian and Michael for joining us. Go by Jewish Futures. You're welcome. And thank you so much for having us. So thank you so much again to Michael and Ian for joining us on the podcast. Of course, again, that is Jewish Futures, the anthology um, available most August 7th. Yes, August 7th, anywhere books are sold. We will have links in the description. Um, and you can ask your libraries to get it too. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's great. It's always great to have anthologies in circulation because that's how you get like the little kids who are not really supposed to read that stuff yet. Um <laughs> awesome we're recruiting <laughs> and uh, as for us uh tamar where can people find you on the internet uh you can find me at tamarherman.com or at tamar writes on most platforms but i'm not really on twitter right now because oh sorry x right now because of everything is going through um i do tiktoks under the name tamar talks like tiktoks um tamar talks but um <laughs> i also launched the place to really find me nowadays which I didn't have the last time we did this, I think, was I launched the Substack Notes on K-pop recently, and it's I think it's really great. Um, I'm also, if you're going to be, if anybody who listens to this listens to it because you like K-pop and you join some for some reason, that's fascinating, and I want you to reach out to me because I want to chat. Uh, but I will be at KCON later this summer, so if anyone's there, come say hi. Exciting. Uh, SM, how about you? Well, I got tired of all of my links being scattered across the internet so i actually made um a uh, a single page where you can find a bunch of links to various things including jewish futures including my Substack, including nice jewish fangirls podcast etc etc um and that is lnk.bio slash sm rosenberg so lnk like link but without the i so lnk.bio slash smrosenberg, and um, you'll see all those nice links very handy. Um, and I, I designed it 
to, I mean, I, I, they had, you know, certain preset formats and whatever, but I designed it to look fun and playful. So hopefully this will be more useful than just rattling off a bunch of different websites and handles and things that people could try and find me on. Uh, and yeah, as for me, I am, I guess, still on Twitter for now. I'm whatever. My handle is Ink as Rain, I-N-K-A-S-R-A-I-N. I'm on most places like that, but not using a whole bunch of them. Find me if you want. Um, and uh, of course, yes, Michal raises uh, yeah. the quality <laughs> of the site that she is on. Because it is currently yeah, in yeah, the swamp. It's very bad. Oh it's my very god, bad. it's so bad. <laughs> That's why I'm on a break. I was like, I was gonna take August off social media anyway, but then I realized, oh, I have to do KCon, so I might go back. But um, I was just like, when they launched X, I was just like, this is ridiculous. I need. I mean, to, like... it's still called Twitter because they haven't yeah. changed the the URL, right? So like the URL just... redirects, but also I literally was looking at their whatever we were talking about something about. Um, there's this pop news site, news account on Twitter that apparently has sponsored content and they don't mark it off. So I was like, pretty sure that's against their TOS. So I was looking at their terms of service and um, like literally they didn't update any of it. Like they didn't command F it or control F it to just swap out Twitter with X. Like they didn't do any of this. Like this was all pushed, like all the things since he got there last minute. So... Well, yeah, I mean, like, the the removing the verified thing. This is a whole different kettle of fish. But, like, I I still have a verified tab in my in my thing. I just... I saw that today. Um, it, it doesn't say verified, but if you... Yeah. Oh, does mine say verified? Yeah. I've never... Oh, oh, yeah, on the side. No, right on the side. <laughs> um, and I just want to uh, give a shout-out, of course, to our wonderful editor, Jamie... You can find them online by going to jamiebloomberg.com. That's J-A-M-I-E, bloomberg.com. Um, and they're basically jamie underscore Bloomberg anywhere that doesn't not allow you to use an, uh, an underscore. Um, and yeah, I think that's going to do it for us tonight. Um, it's good to be back, guys. Glad to be doing this with you. All right. Fantastic. Good night and live long and prosper, everyone. Same.